Okay. There you are. Now it's everything is yeah. perfect. So sorry about okay. that. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we started a few minutes before and thanks to our fans in the audience, they realized, oh, it's not recording. So thank you so much, everyone. Okay, I'll, um, in the meantime, if I'm a little bit quiet, it's because I will put up the link again and share it on Twitter and so on. So I'll, I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> Hi, Ilya. Thank you so much. You were the person that uh, pointed it out. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, Frank. How are you? Come up. Hi, James. Hi, Molly. Um, how are you, Frank? Haven't seen you in a while. Hope you're doing well. Hi, Katerina. Yeah, it's been a little while and not, not that long. Yeah, so uh, I'm doing all right and uh, making uh, uh, progress along my own uh, work as well. It's uh, now I'm moving from mechanical and towards electronic like uh, simulations. Quite, quite fun stuff. They're very captivating <laughs> with a little, uh, uh, you know, graphene sheet uh, type of uh, models. Yeah, look, really looking forward to uh, this uh, talk. Very interesting. Yeah. Thanks for Ram to grace us with uh, uh, your great research. Uh, it's actually a very humbling topic, you know. The more you work on it, the, the, you, you are just in awe with what nature has done. Yeah, it's um, it's really a hard topic. I I always um, yeah look forward to these talked about those type of topics but i also you know it's it must be very humbling doing the research but it's also you know one of the most curious things to be working on so it must yep. be also really very interesting agreed agreed Oh hi, Ram. Uh, do you have a uh, slides? Uh, what, what what would be the style? I'm actually looking up the okay. the reference so link. Uh, I think, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, I think Katrina will be sharing a, a link to the Google Drive where you will see the file, and it has animation. So it's not when you click, it's not just going to go to the next slide. It will show up pictures in a, a sequence, one after the other, so that the slide is not crowded. So if I show the slide in in its entirety from the beginning, it's going to just show the um, 
So if I click on it, you will see the slide. You will just see the problems, you know, origins of life. And then, um, so if you click on it, you know, you are going to see this kind of a animation come up. That's what is going to happen. And so I'll walk you through the animation for that one. Okay, so, so uh, let me know when I sh should start, Katrina, and, uh, you know, I'll wait for your cue. Yes, um, yeah, thank you uh, for pointing that out. I also, I'm posting in the chat if people come later to um, to see the animation the right way. If you click on the link, um, use Google Slides the, if you have the app. Um, if you come here often to this club, it's uh, real, really helpful to have it um, since we usually share the slides through um through google drive and um if you then click on the presentation mode on the little play button on the top uh, then you can see the slides in the presentation modes it's like a fuller screen you can see it better and you have the interactive um videos and so on um so yeah that's very helpful uh Okay, I shared that in the chat and we can, yeah, let's, um, let's start. So welcome everyone to Science Society. And um, please, if you think this room is interesting for people uh, you know and that are interested in this sort of topic, share the room with them. It's a public room, everyone can come and access it. Uh, and of course, a special welcome to Dr. Krishnamurthy. And uh, before we start, let me give um, everyone a short introduction. And then um, after the introduction, I will give, Victoria will ask a few interview questions. Um, since I think, um, you know, talking about you in an interactive way is way more interesting <laughs> than me just summarizing everything. So, um, yeah, so um, uh, Dr. Um, Krishnamurti, he um, did his bachelor's at uh, the University of Madras and his ma master's at the IIT in Bombay. And then he moved for his PhD in chemistry to the Ohio State University, um, Columbus. And um, he there started actually to um, to go on this path um, and of science and asking the big questions in science, uh, which is really interesting. The life um, or the path you took and the questions you had um, during this path of becoming then um, the professor at the Department of Chemistry at the Cripps, uh, Scripps Research Institute where you are now. And um, so that we learn from it, I think it's a way more fun way if Victoria asks you interview questions about that. And uh, thank you so much again. Yeah, thanks again. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> Thank you, Katarina, and welcome, Dr. Krishnamurti. We're really so, so honored to have you here and hear you share your work. And so, yes, we would love to hear 
some background information that has to do, well, you're talking about the origins of life. And my question is about the origins of your interest in science. If you can think back through your life of when that origin arose for you, if it was in childhood or in school or when you first really noticed that, that affinity for science. Uh, that's a that's a very loaded question, an interesting question because I have to reach you know very far back because I come from a um, a very philosophical background where we are you know generally the Indian philosophy is to question quite a lot uh, why and you know how and what is what we see real you know not to just accept what we see as real but to keep on asking the questions and removing you know the answer is not it is this but the answer is not this and that's a very strange answer you know when we try to find out what the absolute real is the answer keeps coming when we study this world as not this not this not this and so you know it's that kind of a questioning which really set the stage for me and uh, you know i was very much interested in chemistry from a very young age but then the spark actually came when I was watching Carl Sagan's Cosmos. And, you know, that was the first time it was being, you know, shown in India. And, you know, we would be in rapt attention every Sunday it would come. And it would be wonderful to go on this journey with Carl Sagan on this um, voyager of his to the different planets and different worlds and think about the origin. And that's where I started really, you know, thinking about why things are the way they are. It was really not an origins of life question, but why are things the way they are and not different why are they not otherwise and those kind of questions kept on bugging me and you know chemistry was the one that really kept my interest in science because i was a um, very much interested in how molecules come together how they give rise to properties that are you know uh, ma almost magical you know how do these small atoms comes to become become to become molecules and they again give these supramolecular structures and then you know suddenly all of a sudden you have a property that you can hold in your hand or you know be affected by and then in when i was doing my phd at ohio state that's when i first came across this lecture by albert eschenmoser who said why not hexose nucleic acids so that was a very funny question you know and um, because when you look at your rna and dna they are made up of what is known as ribose nucleic acids and deoxyribonucleic acids, which are five carbon atoms. But if you stop somebody on the street or even ask yourself, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you say sugars? People will say glucose, fructose, sucrose. Rarely will anybody say ribose. You know, people don't even think ribose as a sugar anymore. It's part of RNA. And so the question was, how did that nondescript ribose end up being part of the most important molecule for life, encoding information and having catalytic activities? So his question was, why not hexose nucleic acids? And that, you know, lecture completely bowled me over. After listening to the lecture, you know, I simply fell in love with that subject. So that's how my interest started from a young age to this journey that now I'm still on. You know, I, I would say the journey is not yet done. And I do not know whether it will be done even, you know, in many lifetimes, uh, if you, you know, trying to understand the origins of life. Thank you very much. That's it. Um, yeah, I, I, I really resonated with you um, hearing you use the word magic, because that's really, I think for many of us, that's why we're here. And that's what we feel 
uh, about science that we're constantly delving in magic. It's amazing what we learn, and it's it's also amazing the questions that arise in us. And yep. so, yeah, understanding that your background is you're from a questioning background, and and so once you um, came to that that. Um, you know, when you had that happen, that you were studying and you had the questions about the ribose and why is the ribose, um, you know, part of this most important molecule of life. Can you take us along your path of discovery or, um, yes. yeah, your work to, yes, to today? Thank you so yes, much, Doctor. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So that's a very nice segue into, you know, how my thought process changed. So, the, you know, when you want to understand a structure, you know, one of the things that my professor taught me was you do not understand a particular structure looking at it a priori. You know, for example, when we look at RNA, you can ask the question, why ribose and not any other sugar? Why phosphate and not any, any other linker? Or why the, you know, two purine bases and two pyrimidine bases? Why did nature choose a purine pyrimidine paradigm? Could it not have chosen two purine paradigms or two pyrimidine paradigms? You know, why Why this, you know, 6-5-membered with another 6-membered ring kind of combination. So when you look at this, you know, you, when you want to try and find answers, just studying RNA gives you, does not give you the clear answer. But if you make a variation of it, so for example, you take the ribose and replace it with a hexose, you know, for example, a glucose, what happens to the, you know, base pairing property of that Watson-Crick base pairing? Amazingly, when you know when that's what Eschenmoser did, when he replaced the ribose with a hexose, like a glucose or a fructose, uh, you know, or, uh, he did glucose and the various isomers of that, the base pairing really fell off. You know, it, it became a very weak base pairing system. Okay, so then you can come back and compare it with RNA and say, aha. RNA seems to have this base pairing property which the other system doesn't, therefore, maybe life you know, use this one. Not so fast, because when we went to the ribose, which is in a five-membered ring in the RNA, which is called a furanose, and you can change it to a pyranose, which is a six-membered ring. So it's the same ribose, but not in a five-membered ring shape, but in a six-membered ring shape. It's called the pyranose ribose. Then when we did that chemistry with Professor Eschenmoser leading the way, what we found was that the pyranose form of RNA is actually much stronger than RNA itself. It's much more Watson-Crick selective. So the answer is not simply the base pairing strength that nature chose it by. You know, it must have chosen it because it's optimal for what, what its function is. That means it's like, you know, the uh, Alice in Wonderland paradigm, not too strong like the pyranose form, not too weak like the uh, glucose form, but just right in the ribofuranose form. So, you know, that really began to tell me that you can't look at these molecules in isolation to understand why they are special. You have to see how they interact with the environment and how interact they interact with other molecules because as they begin to function, it is a function that is responsible for the selection. You know, just because the molecule is present, it's not selected. It is selected because it functions in a way. A non-functional molecule or a non-functional part of the molecule is not selected. It's just like, you know, when you get infected, your body does not know the answer immediately and it produces millions and millions and, you know, of antibodies. 
And it's only one or two antibodies that really work. And the system immediately recognizes that and produces more copies of that that worked. And all the other things that didn't work, it does not produce anymore. So it is the functional aspect of these molecules, which they express themselves only at the level of, you know, when they are interacting, what we call a systems chemistry. In a system only, the function is expressed, not in isolation. So that is the guiding principle. And that will be the kind of background I give for about five or six slides before I jump into the philosophy of how we approach, uh, you know, uh, chemically, the, you know, understanding the origins of life. Thank you so much. And, and that strategy is so, um, it's just a beautiful strategy to apply to anything really that, it, you know, when you said if we replace the ribose with something else, then what happens? It's, it's um, yeah, it's just such a, uh, maybe a different methodology than, um, or it's just, it's just great to have in the toolbox. It's a fantastic way to look at things and keep questioning, um, maybe honest and and open-minded yeah. so yeah so thank you very much and and it's just it's like you know with art you can if you're creating a dance or music you can vary time or space or energy mm -hmm. it's you know it's all it's all kind of the same um so thank you for that and at this point the mic is yours to continue your talk and you see your slides are there and then we can have a Q&A following your discussion if you'd like, or if you'd rather have sure. questioning drive your discussion, um, that's entirely up to you. Sometimes people put questions in the room chat for you and we, the moderators, are happy to um, share those with you. So sure, please, sure. Um, thank so, you and you enjoy. Know, if, you, if you feel the questions you know, are appropriate you know, at that time, please read them out and I'll try to answer them on the fly. If not, I will say I will answer them at the end of the Q&A. You know, so, you know, depending on the context. Okay, so um, I'm going to begin. And what I just want is, is like a housekeeping note. So what these slides are going to have number of animations. So when you click on the next button and it goes to two, you may actually be on the same slide and it, a, a figure will appear or image will appear or a text will appear or it will disappear and be replaced by another text. So I'm on slide one. And but when I click, it's going to you know be on slide one, but you'll see this image up here. So the image that shown is you know what we understand of so-called Darwinian evolution, when you go from a single cell to multicellularity, and you know to what we see as man today. Um, but you know, and that is possible because we are able to go back and reconstruct that based on fossils. So if you click the next one, you will see the deconvolution appear. And then, you know, that's because we can deconvolute by walking back with fossil records and try to, you know, come up with this, you know, a theory and, you know, and, you know, try to, you know, understand how multicellularity would come. However, if you click the next one and if you replace this, you know, the images disappear and now you are replacing it with, you know, prebiotic chemistry and biology in life where you are replacing it with the molecules of life, then things get a little complicated. Complicated because there are large gaps in our, you know, if you click the next arrow, you'll see arrow with gaps in between. Gaps in knowledge of how, you know, the molecules went from being an amino acid to a protein and then gave rise to what we call life today. 
And it's also because we have a lot of black boxes. So if you click next, the black boxes would appear. And these black boxes not necessarily are, you know, that I can't demonstrate. I can demonstrate. I can take mixtures of amino acids and make proteins. And then I can, you know, take proteins and put them somewhere and, you know, show life-like property. But your question will always be, Ram, you have done this, but do you know this is exactly the way it happened 4 billion years ago on Earth? And we have no answer, definitive answer to that because there are no chemical fossils, unfortunately. So we can't go back. So if you click the arrow, the going back arrow is also quite difficult. So coming either from the molecules of life or coming from life itself, either a top-down approach or a bottom-up approach still leaves us with this question. If you click next one, it says, what or how can we know about the chemical origins of life? Remember, it's a question of can. I didn't change. I didn't say, you know, should, you know, could or did, but I said can. And there is a reason for that. So when clicking next, you go to the second slide. And in the second slide, you have the three pillars of bio prebiotic chemistry. If you click once more, the three reactions will appear. One is called the Formos reaction. The other is the uh, Uri Miller famous spark discharge experiment, which con you know converted gases like methane, ammonia, hydrogen in the presence of water to amino acids. And then the third one is not well known, but it is the polymerization of a simple molecule called hydrogen cyanide, which gives long black polymers, which then if you hydrolyze, produces a lot of heterogeneous um, mixtures of molecules, one of which is adenine. There are a lot more, but you know, there is, you know, adenine. So people look at this and they say, oh, these kind of simple reactions give rise to the building blocks of life. So life must be possible from this kind of chemistry. Not so fast. If you click once more, you will see the current state of the art of people's thinking. They will, you know, either rely on what is known as an RNA world where people would you know, hypothesize that RNA was the first self-replicating molecule that came about and then gave rise to everything else. Um, then there is no, there are people who say, no, 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 that's not right. There is a metabolism world where you have small molecules coming together. And then there are people who still argue for proteins appearing first because amino acids are very elementary in prebiotic chemistry. And then there are people who say, wait, you need to put this all in an enclosure. So you need some sort of a, a vesicle which the lipids provide. So it's a lipid world. And you know, they go on and on with this one. But the problem with all this is that, you know, they forget that, you know, the, the, we are working with really prebiotic mixture. So if you click next, you will see the term one among many, many, many compounds. So though you see, few, you know, ribose, though you see adenine, and though you see glycine there or the amino acids, they are among a terrible mixture of compounds that are formed. So the question is, how does that, if you click once more, you will see how does that prebiotic many become the emergent few. So how does the prebiotic, you know, the biological few, how does it become that? And the problem with the, you know, the strategy currently, you know, pursued by people who believe in the RNA world or the metabolism world is that they are trying to extrapolate bio biology all the way back to prebiotic chemistry 4 billion years ago when there was no biology, you know? So what we are trying to do is we are taking a finished product and we are looking at the parts of the finished product and trying to find it in the wood that it came from. So you will not find it, unfortunately, because it is completely coarse. And, you know, many of the clues have been destroyed either by the earth, you know, being so violently changing in the early years 
or by life itself life is a you know you life is so ubiquitous on earth you will find it almost everywhere and even if you find something you have to prove that it's not from modern life but something ancient that existed 4 billion years ago and that is always a challenge so clicking on that you will see that um yeah so um for some strange reason it's not moving there are only two slides that was my question well, was about to ask you to to, oh. to to check to make sure that oh. it was oh um, all, um, you might have clicked the wrong slide you know you might have put the wrong one oh the one which was the test slide that i sent you you know then oh. i sent you the other one okay let me just copy again sorry about yeah. that no problem i'll click done and then we'll click the next one <laughs> Yeah, those are the test slides. Oh, I didn't notice. I should have told I'm you. I'm so sorry that I told. <laughs> it was the whole thing of restarting the room. The night. Yeah. Okay. So, be the right so, one. Right. This is just the first slide acknowledging all the funders and you know all my colleagues who worked on this. And so, so we'll skip to skip. You know, uh, skip to the third slide. Um, slide number three, if you want to go to. Um, so just click uh, slide four. Yeah, we'll now go to slide four. Okay, so if people are on slide four, they should see the camel problem. Anybody see that? Yeah, I can see it, um, Frank. Everyone. So, yeah. Okay. I will assume that everybody is on the slide number four, where they see the camel problem, and this is an interesting question. You know, so there is a problem. A father leaves seventeen camels for his three sons, and when the father passes away, they open the will. And the math is a little difficult. He says half of the seventeen should be given to the first son, one third to the second, one ninth to the third. And you know that you can't divide the camels in a proper way. Either you have a unhappy camel or a unhappy son. So you then how do you solve the problem? So if you click next, you'll go to the next slide. and i'll tell you what the relation of that problem is to our thinking in approaching origins of life so this is a quote from my professor who's my mentor in this field and he says the aim of such people like me working in this field is not to look at it as a historical problem but look at it more like a challenge can you make life can your chemicals come together and make something called life like processes that is more important than trying to reconstruct the history because you know as i told you before it's we are struggling to reconstruct the history because we have very less clues to do that so if you click once more you will see what the approach that we take is called systems chemistry so we try to mix molecules and see what sort of interactions arise under a given different you know given conditions and it's shown you know in a way that you know the the philosophy that we work with is the origins of life cannot be you know discovered because there are so many ifs and buts there so can we reinvent it can we you know with our ingenuity or our learning and being humble through the learning process come up with a paradigm come up with a model that can so the question that we ask is so if you click once more you will see colored balls appear with the prebiotic many can we take the mixture of chemicals under prebiotic conditions click once more can you come up with systems that emerge and one more click will give you what we call a process called proto life so can we take this process in the lab and see what happens so the idea is 
that if you click once more, it is a, an experimental approach that is based on emergent properties of naturally manifesting systems from a mixture. I don't engineer the system in any way once I mix it. I only define the starting conditions and I mix it and then see what goes on just as an observer from outside. Okay, then based on the observations, I can go back and reiterate, change the condition or change the ratios of the mixture and see what happens. This is a non-teleological approach to biology, how properties emerge. And I'll explain what non-teleology means in the next slide. So click once more and you will see at the bottom, some molecules appear. So let us say you are on a planet, exoplanet, where you do not know anything and you only know these type of molecules exist there. The question you should ask yourself is based on these molecules, can you already predict what the biological molecule should be? Without knowing what the outcome is, how do I know I need to pick ribose or how do I know I need to pick adenine because I do not know what the end product is. I remember you are on the earth 4.2 billion years ago and you still don't know what biology is because it has not yet started. How do you know to look for RNA because RNA is not there? Click once more. Do I make a selection at a more complex level when these molecules come together? One more, or at a higher complex level, and, or at the oligomer level, what we call oligonucleotide level, one more click, or do I make the selection at when the RNA emerges as a functional entity? So you can have selection at many different levels, one more click. So you can't select for RNA at the ribose level because there is still do not an RNA. Right? But you can select for something else based on the property of the ribose versus, you know, lixose or the other isomers of the sugar. One more click is, you know, if you try to superimpose biology on prebiotic chemistry 4.2 billion years ago, you are doing so because you already know the outcome. And that's not the way to understand how life arose. You know, if you already know the answer, then you will only try to engineer your systems to find that answer. Okay. So what I'm arguing is there is no teleology or purposeful destination when you start off in the very beginning. Therefore, when you click once more, there is a very famous saying by Francois Jacob who said, you know, evolution is a tinkerer, not an engineer. And you click once more, you'll get, that's also true for chemical evolution. That means if you click twice, you know, it's a systems chemistry approach. That means, can I mix these molecules and would RNA be the only solution that I get at the end? If it is the only solution, then that's fine. But if there are other solutions that come up, I need to pay attention to that. And I'll give you one concrete example of how focusing on biology can mislead you. So click once more, you will see a molecule, you know, molecule RNA, and you will see a molecule cytidine on the left-hand side and uridine on the right-hand side. These are the building blocks of RNA, and these are called pyrimidine nucleotides. And if you look and make a connection to prebiotic chemistry once more, click, you will see these, you know, the uracil and cytosine, you know, which are the nucleobases, they come naturally from these hydrogen cyanide polymers that I told you before. So people make a connection and they say, look, you know, um, this can work so nicely. But the problem is, it's not simple because if you look at how biology makes it one more click, Biology makes the uridine and cytidine starting with orotidine. It's a completely different molecule. And the nice thing about this, if you look in prebiotic chemistry, 
the and you know in in biology it takes it from orotic acid so but nature still today you know does not make these um, uracil and cytidine if you click once more you'll see a green bar over the um, natural basis but what it does is it makes only orotic acid from starting from aspartic acid so if you try only looking at rna as the finished product and look at uridine and cytidine and look at the prebiotic chemistry which and you look only for those bases but you completely ignore the orotic acid that biology is using and that's my point so click once more and you will see this what i call the bbb syndrome which is called the blinded by biology syndrome we look at biology and we extrapolate it you know blindly what prebiotic chemistry must do in order for you to get lives life's building blocks and i will show you an approach where if you ignore biology you may be able to get at the same molecule but through a completely different route so if you click on the um, next slide you will see the um, answer to the problem math problem so there you see that there is the camel problem and once you are not able to solve a problem you generally go to a wise person and they went to a wise person who said oh i'll solve it i'll come with one more camel of mine he adds it to the total and then it becomes 18 and now he's able to do the math so 18 one you know so half of that he gives it to the first son saying one third gives it to the middle and then one nine gives it to the second and if you add the nine six and two it's 17. so the man takes his camel back now what does this mean for our chemistry on origins of life my question is by ignore, ignoring in prebiotic chemistry other molecules remember the very slide that first slide i showed you the three reactions where there are mixtures could those other molecules could have provided some solution and they have just gone away just like this 18th camel so if you click on the next slide um you know how does this 18th camel help so you go to the slide number eight where we come to the problem of peptide formation so peptides are the building blocks for proteins and they are nothing but two amino acid units joined together by what we call an amide bond and people, you know, remember the Stanley Miller, Uri Miller experiment, the famous spark discharge, people were excited finding amino acids. So they just said, let's take amino acids and try to make peptides out of them. Till today, there has not been a very good solution to that. Okay, because you have to do so many um, shenanigans to that and then come up with answers or, you know, justifications. But if you actually go and look at, you know, if you click once more, in the context of prebiotic chemistry and go back and look at the Uremiller experiment where you see this very nice spark discharge experiment that's still there at UCSD in San Diego. What it is, is it, it's not only those amino acids, you click once more, this reaction also produces molecules called hydroxy acids where the NH2 of an amino acid is replaced by a hydroxy acid. And so now the question is, Go and look at the meteorites where you know you have heard these wonderful news stories where meteorites bring the building blocks of life but the building blocks of life are not the only molecules on meteorites they bring all other kind of molecules and if you look at the chemical inventory there is also the same hydroxy acids that is produced in the miller experiment so the when you look at prebiotic chemistry it tells you that alpha amino acids are not alone they are always produced with alpha hydroxy acid and now the question is why are we ignoring those alpha hydroxy acids? Because nature does not use them. You know? So if you click once more, um, you will see that, um, you know, you'll see that uh, the BBB bias. 
we tend to ignore because it, you know it's not sensational. You know, uh, you imagine Stanley Miller would not have gotten the notoriety if he said, "I produce alpha hydroxy acids." You know, published in you know Science, and then you know New York Times wrote a big article about it, made him very famous. But he was very famous because he identified amino acids. But the hydroxy acids are still there. And now the question that we asked ourselves is, if you click once more, can the mixture give you the same peptides? Okay. Can you start with a mixture of alpha hydroxy acid and amino acids and produce the same peptides, which people have been struggling to do? So if you click once more, you will see the amino acid in blue and the hydroxy acid in red. And what we did was a very simple experiment. We mixed them in water, did nothing else, just dried them down degrees centigrade and then once all the water was gone we simply added water back and then repeated the same drying and then we added water back and simply repeated the same drying it's known as a wet dry cycle which can be simulated on early earth you know by the sun beating down on a pond the pond dries then rain comes in you know then you know so it's a kind of a scenario and what happened was you see this red molecule that is drawn there i you know i can't unfortunately use any uh, marker or presenter here, but the red molecule at the bottom is known as an ester bond, where you see this, you know, two molecules joins together. And that ester bond is now active. And what happens is an amino acid attacks it and makes an amide bond naturally in that system without any, you know, us doing anything. And then what happens is see that the blue has now come in and replaced another red molecule and now you see there is an extra carboxylic acid at the end it's called a depsy peptide and this if you continue will continue by itself and you know before you know it what happens is you get a long polymer which is enriched in peptide bonds it's not a pure you know peptide because it's a depsy peptide because it has hydroxy um, ester bonds in between but what you have done enhance the peptide bond formation naturally starting from a mixture and what is so nice about that is it's you know if you click once more at the left hand bottom you'll see this summary that peptides can naturally emerge from a plausible prebiotic mixture and what is so pleasing about this demonstration if you click once more is what exactly your ribosome does when it's making peptides in your body it makes an ester bond with an amino acid with what is known as a tRNA. It's called the, you know, and then it brings the two tRNAs on a messenger RNA. And then you see the NH2 group now attacks that carbonyl group of that ester and makes a peptide bond. And the whole thing repeats again. So what we have done is we have, you know, discovered the same chemistry that nature is doing now, but in a very primordial sense, just with the, you know, um, building blocks of just amino acids and hydroxy acids. And so now you click one more, you will go to the ninth slide. And if you keep clicking, you will see the appearance of these colored balls and you keep clicking and you keep clicking. And then the question is, is that, you know, is can you do this evolution? And you click once more. The question you ask is, is that alpha hydroxy your 18th camel, which comes and goes, you know, it's re, it's, re, it's being recycled. Right, so it is as if the 18th camel is that hydroxy acid which comes, solves your peptide problems, and then goes away. Exactly what, like, you know, nature does with the ribosome. Click once more. You're on slide 10, and you'll see a railway line which is disconnected. And this disconnection shows the disconnect that we have in trying to bridge biology to prebiotic chemistry using only biological molecules. On the other hand, you click once more. 
you that figure will disappear click once more you'll get you know so now if you introduce the hydroxy acid which is in the green and you click once more you get a different railway line one that is not completely disconnected but one is not completely connected either this is a, you know it's like you have to change stations somewhere in between and change you know from one track to another and this is not unrealistic if you look in the history of the world about 2 to 2.5 billion years ago there was an abrupt rise in oxygen and that caused a lot of issues for the chemistries that could not survive oxygen and those died off those that could survive had to adapt or invent new things so if for example if you you know look at photosynthetic oxygenic uh, you know oxygenic photosynthesis that will go only back to about to 2.5 billion years back not before because previously there was this anaerobic or anoxygenic you know chemistry that was occurring so one has to be very careful of how you extrapolate biology all the way to prebiotic chemistry okay so that gives you an example of how you can start with different prebiotic chemistry and switch to different biology but some semblance of connection with the same amino acids and the same mechanism you know that is common between what i showed with the ribosome extra mediated peptide and the extra mediated with the amino acids and hydroxy acids so clicking on it you go to slide 11. in slide 11 the metabolism starts so i will stop here and ask if there are any questions before i delve into the metabolism aspect of this one yeah please go ahead and ask okay oh frank yeah. go ahead uh, so Frank, yeah, yeah, questions? yeah. So yeah, so it is definitely a treat with this new set of slides. <laughs> Much better than the previous, just only two. So it caused me a lot of <laughs> panic. I was thinking, should, should I go do the paper, the original paper? So no, that's no, why no, I missed no, the no, question. No. Sorry but, about uh, that. I apologize. Yeah, that that that's, it works great. It's just like you know, this is very uh, information dense. By the way, and the, the way this is the first time I saw the way it's very ingenious that you use the fully utilize the PBT, you know, the animation feature that go, go step by step. But just quickly on the big uh, message you are trying to deliver here, I, I, let me see if I get it right. So for the prebionic, the, the, that's very in, intriguing to see there's uh, something, the 18th camel that uh, comes and goes, i.e. the hydroxy acid. acid. So uh, when you say, uh, emphasize being the word can that means they uh so so i i i i was distracted a little what what happens is is, is it when, when you say can that means that uh, uh if the condition back then uh, was a little bit different then we have the different track wonderful wonderful question really frank wonderful question and you are jumping way ahead of me i'm going to address that in the very last slide <laughs> can you can you wait till the last well, slide? I just want to uh, uh, make sure that I got the uh, uh, so uh, no, that you're implying right. you that I, I got right. I, I got the, I, I'm I'm on track, right? But but still, the uh, when you say the wet and dry cycle, that uh, that's quite uh, because uh, uh, one of our uh, uh, hosts is, is a very uh, is expert on this topic, but uh, she wasn't yeah. here today. So there's yeah. the clay. Uh, the 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 there's competing uh, hypothesis, right? You know, thermal Correct. vents versus yes. the uh the the wet dry like uh, 
uh, lakeshore or seashore. Correct. Uh, yeah. there, there's a clay, there's a matrix yeah. uh, to yeah. it. So, so yeah. are, do, you, do you have to take all these? Uh, so, wet dry, meaning that uh, it's um, at least what, what I read is the facilitates the membranes formation. So, there's a um, their demarcation of in, inside and out. So, a, anyway, that's probably just one, uh, you know, uh, point uh, looking at the whole uh, elephant through a, a spectrum, you know. Uh, a microscope yeah. Yeah. yeah you're absolutely right frank and you know thanks for bringing that up you know as i pointed out before there are many theories out there and many ways to approach this problem and i would be remiss if i claim that mine is the only way to do this you know not at all so what i'm just showing here is a proof of principle experiment that if you start with mixtures the answers emerge naturally rather than trying to force the answer only through looking through the lens of biology to this you can add metals you can you can add clays we have done that you know so one of my colleagues is looking at what all could be added to this mixture and how they would influence the outcome you know would there be some sort of an absorption on the clay that would lead to selective absorption of the peptides that would form can we recycle and make longer peptides all of those are valid questions we have not looked into it. I'm very much interested in showing the proof of principle and you know, just and then taking it further to a higher level rather than just getting caught in that condition because that could be a jungle where you get caught and you can find yourself in a local minima that you are not able to come out of it at all. And many people are stuck in that minima like that. You know, they focus only on, you know, their pet theory of, you know, clays or thermal vents or wet dry cycling and then they are not able to come out of that because then they throw everything according to that wet dry cycle or the thermal vent theory and everything has to happen there you know they they just don't open up a little bit and what the there are problems with each and every approach there are drawbacks with each and every approach but what we try to show here is that you starting with mixtures you are better off and you know this is not just for peptide we have also shown it in oligonucleotides and I'm not going to talk about that because the focus is on metabolism, but I use this as a principle, you know, show to show as a proof of principle, the philosophy or the philosophy underlying our approach in trying to understand how mixtures can give rise to more clean materials or more homogeneous materials that way, because life relies on these homogeneous materials. You know, so if you take a peptide, it's not homogeneous in terms of composition, but it's homogeneous in terms of its peptide composition. That is the peptide bonds. The same way, if you, if you take oligo, it's not homogeneous with the AUGC, but it's homogeneous with respect to the phosphoribose backbone. So those are the kind of things that we are trying to develop so that we are then trying to see whether that emergence leads to more interactions or different type of interactions that give rise to lifelike properties. But your point is well taken. There are many theories out there, but we do not try to go, get caught in one of them alone. That's my point. Okay? Got it. And so it's an excellent answer and uh, uh, very much looking for. I mean, this is definitely, I, I, I somehow, I think this, you, I subscribe to your philosophy as well. It's, it will be a pr productive one, you know, get, yeah. get the, you know, a result and uh, yeah. cutting the garden, uh, garden knots. Yeah. So great. Uh, looking forward to, you know, the, okay. the, the more to come. Yeah. Thanks, Frank. So I'll go on to slide number 11. Which now, you know, you know, now we are talking about metabolism and people are trying to do the same thing. They look at metabolic pathways in life today 
and then they look at starting molecules on earth and then they say let us try to make a direct connection and there have been a lot of papers and one of the most important cycle that has been studied if you click once more is called the reverse citric acid cycle shown on the top right hand corner it's a very complex cycle which is run by many enzymes and i will tell you that you know it's almost impossible for a chemist like me to envision running this all reactions in a single pot without the help of enzymes because there are so many competing reactions as i will shortly allude to in the next slide so you click once more so people have taken that you know and you will see a simplistic representation with black dots you know two two type of circles so people have really looked at this and said you know let us simplify this and see if we can start with carbon dioxide so the argument is based on if you click once more the yellow carbon dioxide as the building block parsimony argument will appear so people want a continuity right from the beginning to the end they don't want a break as i alluded to in the previous slide so they want to say okay if i do everything with carbon dioxide from the beginning then it becomes easier for me to transition to what life is doing today i don't want to use cyanide i don't want to use anything uh, that life uh, is not using today uh, Rab, yeah. quickly, I just yeah. do a housekeeping. The we are for yeah. the new uh, audience. We are on the number uh, uh, slice number eleven, and at the probably yeah. at the last click, there, there it's each slice has multiple clicks. So if you want yes, to follow, that's right. The, that's yeah, right. Just, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks again. Just to reiterate, each slide has number of figures. So when you click, you may not automatically go to the next slide, but images will appear or disappear and appear based on the. Uh, you know, sequence that I have put. The reason I have done this is because if I just show the slide fully, it will be too cluttered and people will get confused. Especially when I am going to go to the latter slides where there is a lot of organic chemistry structures, and I apologize in advance for that. But as an organic chemist, I can't escape. And as a life you know, that's based on organic chemistry, we can't escape either. So, click on that again, and now you go to slide number twelve. And here you see the reductive citric acid cycle in its full glory, and this is what people have focused on. And the reason they focus on this is because it takes carbon dioxide and converts it into organic molecules. Okay, so it's an anabolic cycle, not a metabolic, you know, catabolic one, but an anabolic. It it builds from carbon dioxide. Okay, so there are many steps where carbon dioxide is taken in, especially. Where, if you look, you know, let me see. I can't, unfortunately, I can't use this um, uh, pointer or anything. But going from um, oxaloacetate to alpha ketoglutarate, if you can see that, it goes by, you know, from succinate. At the very bottom left hand side, you will see succinate. Succinate goes to succinyl CoA and then it goes to alpha ketoglutarate. So that you know, is um, uh, building up, of, you know, or in, incorporating a carbon dioxide in there. So what many people have tried to reproduce this and they have failed, mainly because it's very tough in order to run this whole cycle in a single pot without the help of enzymes. And this, if you click once more, was pointed out by Leslie Orgel in a very famous paper where he argued point by point saying that how many, you know, there are so many competing reactions. There are so many you know, molecules that look similar. Without an enzyme, you cannot discriminate them. It becomes very difficult. So what we decided to do was, you click once more, is that you know, you'll see that there are side reactions. So you click once more, you will see what we decided to do was, instead of focusing on the molecules, we focused on the reaction types. As an organic chemist, I can break this citric, reductive citric acid cycle into very simple reactions, such as hydration, dehydration, decarboxylation, carboxylation 
what is known as a carbon bond forming reaction called the aldol reaction or its reverse breakage called the retroaldol reaction. So these are the simple things. And then we said, are there simple molecules that we can try to reproduce these chemical reactions and see what happens? Not the citric acid cycle, not the reductive citric acid cycle, but what chemical reactions can happen. So we use these two molecules called the pyruvate and glyoxylate. These are two molecules that exist in biology today. In, you know, and then we also used a molecule called malinate that also exists in biology today. And these are systems that are quite reactive because they have these kind of carbonyl groups next to each other. So if you click once more, what we did in collaboration with Professor Greg Springsteen at University of Furman is that we let these molecules react and you click once more, you will see some you know, cyclic reactions appear. I will not go through them in detail, but just suffice to say that we just mix them in the pot and add chemicals and we can begin to see these kind of reactions and monitor them by analytical techniques which gives us the confidence. For example, the cycle on the right hand side, which is called the malinate cycle, we can run them many times, you know, about three times at least by using C13 label isotope labeling to show the incorporation of more and more labeled compounds into the products. We also did what was known as, um, uh, you know, so if you just mix the pyruvate and glyoxylate just by itself in buffer, the reaction happens and we produce a series of chemicals which are nothing but the alpha keto, it's an analog of the reductive citric acid cycle. And what is important is that green circle that is there with glyoxylate, actually that's a reduction of the double bond of that molecule to produce alpha ketoglutarate, which is an important part of the TCA cycle. So here we have not added any metals. Nature uses metals to do this reduction uh, or uses NADH and you know, cofactors to do this. We have simply produced it by using a simple organic molecule, which is also the starting material. And the, I won't go into the mechanistic details, but it is through uh, what is known as a cross canizaro reaction or it's a retroclasin reaction. There are two mechanisms that happen. I will not go into it, but this is what we found. That means by simply mixing the two chemicals, we can produce a series of reactions that almost simulate a reductive citric acid cycle. And we didn't want, you know, that was not what we were looking for. We were just exploring. So this is something that naturally emerges when you mix these two, okay? You don't need any complicated enzymes. You don't need any complicated metals to do this reaction. You just need these two chemicals in a buffer around pH 7, pH 8, or 8.5. And you know you can heat it to room, you know, 45, 50 degrees. You leave it at room temperature, the reaction goes very slowly. This, if you want to run it in 24 hours, you just heat it to 50 degrees. So clicking on that, you go to, you know, so what does this mean, you know, in, in the context of what we are trying to prove here, you know, or show here. So you click once more, you go to slide 14. So what we wondered was, what happens if we introduce cyanide into the system? And the reason we had thought about that was because we discovered this reaction in 2017, where we showed if you mix cyanide and glyoxylate, it makes an adduct immediately called the cyanohydrin, which is shown the second molecule, and it doesn't stop there. It immediately reacts with another molecule to make a more complex molecule and what you, that's a cyanohydrin, that's the third molecule from the left-hand side. And for us, it was a shock to discover that that cyanide, usually cyanides are very difficult to hydrolyze, 
but the cyanide hydrolyzed spontaneously at room temperature slowly though to give the corresponding carboxylic acid which we could just decarboxylate by heating and you know make tartaric acid so you could take two molecules of glyoxylate in the presence of cyanide and make tartaric acid in the single pot it's a very clean reaction um what was surprising for us was we had done a reduction we have taken a carbonyl group which is circled on the red on the glyoxylate and converted it to an alcohol group which is a reduction using simply cyanide so what it gave us was that you know it is going through this kind of a mechanism for people who are mechanistically inclined it's a hydrolysis that takes place via this you know carboxyl accelerated and that becomes important if you count the number of atoms one two three four five that one five relationship is very special okay so if you click once more the green uh, sentence will appear saying important one five relationship is going to be critical for selectivity those molecules that do not have this one five relationship will not be hydrolyzed and you will begin to see the value of this when you apply this to the citric acid cycle so what we did was you click once more we went to the citric acid cycle and said what are the molecules that our cyanide can interact with? And so if you click once more, you will get a list in blue of all the citric acid cycle molecules that are involved in the citric acid cycle. And if you look very closely, all of them have this carbonyl group or a carbon-carbon double bond group. For example, the pyruvate, oxaloacetate, which are the first two molecules, alpha ketoglutrate, which is in the middle, fumarate, which has a double bond, which is the fourth molecule from the left-hand side, uh, the aconitate, which is the second molecule from the right-hand side, those all have what we call unsaturation centers that can react with cyanide. And now let us see what happens when you let cyanide react with them. So click once more. I just now you know, have highlighted the molecules that can interact with the cyanide. Others cannot because they don't have the unsaturation. So now we throw in cyanide with oxaloacetate, which is the second molecule. Click once more, you'll see an arrow. And what that does in the presence of cyanide, click once more, is it makes the cyanohydrin as we saw it before. But now because you have the one five relationship, it will hydrolyze it and gives the corresponding dicarboxylic acid of that, which you decarboxylate, it gives you malate, which happens to be the next product in the reductive citric acid cycle. So it happens automatically. I don't have to use any special enzyme. Now, if I do that with pyruvate, you click once more, which is the molecule on the left-hand side. It just makes the adduct, but since it does not have the one five relationship, nothing happens. It just keeps going back and forth. Now you click once more, the same with the alpha ketoglutrate, which is the molecule, which is the fourth molecule from the right-hand side. Nothing happens to it because it just adds. And then because it doesn't have the one five relationship, it just simply goes back and forth. Now let's come to the fumarate. So if you go to the fumarate, what you see is if you click twice, you will see that the fumarate, again, it can add, but now it has the one five relationship. It can make hydrolyze and then you decarboxylate and gives you, you know, the next molecule, which is um, succinate. It, it was simply amazing for us that a simple molecule like cyanide could differentiate between the different constituents of citric acid cycle and only do the reduction exactly as the what the enzymes do today. So a simple molecules can cyanide can make the selection for you among the mixture of molecules. In fact, we have shown that if you take a mixture of these molecules, that's exactly what happens. Only the molecules that can be reduced or hydrolyzed and reduced get that. Others just make the cyanohydrin adduct and then stop there. 
So what about isocitrate, which is the aconitate, which is the uh, second molecule from the right-hand side? That also can react. And it makes this, uh, you know, if you double click and you go to the very end, it goes and it makes what is known as a tricarboyleric acid, which if you want, you can oxidize to citrate, but that's not of interest for us. But they, it also does the interaction. That's what we are trying to say. So if you click once more, what it is, is you will see cyanide is a primordial reductant. It can act as a primordial reductant, as an abiotic reductant. And it addresses, if you click once more, it addresses the selectivity issue that Orgel brought up before. And it is, um, you know, it's a, it's a very, you know, pleasing way for us, at least intellectually, to discover that a simple molecule can do the job of a complicated enzyme in this kind of a mixture, in a, in a what, what could be a simplistic way. And therefore, we can use this as a system to probe further what can be done in a non-enzymatic fashion which is what we think happened, you know, or, you know, uh, you know, could have happened or can happen in an abiotic sense. So click once more, you go to the next slide. The problem, you know, now is with one of the molecules of the TCA cycle, it's called oxaloacetate. That oxaloacetate is a very important molecule. That is the one that, you know, goes further to give you, you know, malate and then dehydrates to give fumarate. But the problem is if you take this oxaloacetate, which is commercially available and put it in water, it will decompose very rapidly to make pyruvate. That carbon dioxide is lost and it's very difficult to put that carbon dioxide back. People have tried to take pyruvate and put carbon dioxide and make oxaloacetate and nobody has succeeded so far because the reverse reaction is so fast. The other one is thermodynamically uphill reaction. Click once more. So the question we asked is, can we bypass this oxalate completely? So if you look at the sequence of reactions, now, again, this is going to the philosophy that we are not going to be dictated by what we see in biology, but can we bypass the whole thing, you know, and come up with simpler systems? And that's where I'm taking you. So you can take glyoxalate and mix it with this molecule called malonate. That is an acetate equivalent. Nature uses acetyl-CoA. Okay, so we are using malonate as the prebiotic or the abiotic equivalent of acetyl-CoA. And then you click once more, this acetyl-CoA, this, this malonate combines with glyoxalate to give this aldol reaction, a carbon-carbon bond forming reaction. And then you click once more, that can give rise to two different products. If it loses carbon dioxide, it gives malate. And if it loses water, it gives us what is known as the carboxyfumarate, which is the molecule at the bottom, which is the black. Now you can increase, you know, react that with, you know, you can also dehydrate that malate to give you fumarate, which is part of the TCA cycle. And if you add cyanide to that fumarate, which we have already seen, that gives you carboxysuccinate. Okay. Now we can also do the same thing to that other molecule, carboxyfumarate, which is at the bottom, and go to the same molecule. And this molecule, carboxysuccinate, turned out to be extremely crucial for the next discovery that we made. This molecule can now react, you know, it can decarboxylate and go to succinate, which is part of the blue citric acid cycle, or it can combine with another molecule of glyoxylate, click once more and make what is known as a carboxy isocitrate. And you see that red carboxy group, you can decarboxylate, you click once more and it gives you isocitrate, which is what the RTCA cycle makes. You can't do the same reaction with succinate and glyoxylate because the succinate blue, which is right above the isocitrate, is inactive, it's not reactive. 
but the carboxysuccinate, where it comes from, from the loss of the carbon dioxide called the carboxysuccinate, is reactive enough to do this. And then if you do a retroaldol, a breakage of that isocitrate, you can go back to glyoxylate and succinate, and the glyoxylate can be recycled into the reaction. Unfortunately, we have not shown that last step because the conditions under which we do that breakage, if you click once more, is that the glyoxylate immediately does a kinesoro reaction and makes glycolate and oxalate. And recently, there has been another paper published by a different group where they take that glycolate, which is the bottom molecule, and convert it back to glyoxylate. So this type of a, a cycle of reactions can emerge naturally in a single pot. And we have shown that we can actually do this. And if you look very closely, click once more, this cycle has no oxaloacetate or alpha ketoglutarate as the RTCA cycle. So we have developed a much simpler cycle, which completely bypasses the two most problematic molecules to be handled in prebiotic chemistry. Oxaloacetate from a stability viewpoint, alpha ketoglutarate from a reactivity viewpoint. So we have bypassed it and we now have a cycle. Okay, you can say, great, you have a cycle. What does this mean? You know, what, what, what is its significance? So we can do this in one pot. That means we can just take glyoxylate, malinate, and mix it with cyanate, and we see all these species emerging by an NMR, you know, analytical spectroscopy. You know, so we can see that. So that means we can run this reaction, and all we need to do is find conditions for completing the cycle so that we can go around and around. But let us say we do that. What is the significance of that in the context of origins of life? So click once more, and you will see the cycle that I showed on the previous slide on the left-hand side. So this is the proto-metabolic pathway that is mediated by cyanide, okay? This is what I showed you before. And now let us juxtapose this, click once more, and you will see the, you know, um, uh, click once more on the right-hand side, you will see the, the, the citric acid cycle mediated by enzymes, by complex enzymes in biology. So the right-hand side is the one that exists in biology. The left-hand side is the one that we have demonstrated in a lab using cyanide. So now let us make the comparison between the two. Before that, remember that the biological cycle, you click once more, has what is known as a glyoxylate shut, where the isocitrate breaks down and then the glyoxylate mixes with acetyl-CoA and gives you malate, and the malate is oxidized to oxaloacetate, and that is an oxidative glyoxylate shunt. And this is known in biology as well. So now let us compare these two systems and go systematically molecule by molecule. So if you look at the isocitrate, if you click once more, there is a box that will appear, which will show the box of the molecule on the left-hand side, correspondingly on the biological side on the right-hand side. So you see the isocitrate, which is common to both of these cycles, okay? Click once more, you will see the glyoxylate and succinate, which is again common to both cycles. Now let's click once more, and now you'll see malate, which is common to both of them. And once more, you will see the fumarate. So you see there are a lot of overlaps from the, you know, the simple cycle we have developed and the simple, you know, the complex cycle that biology has. The odd man out for us is this carboxysuccinate, which is now in a cycle, in a, which is in a circle, and we do not have the same equivalent on the biological side. Okay. Now we are going to click 
in a series so that we begin to see the arrows appear of how this conversion happens between these molecules. So click once more, you will see the glyoxalate going to malate, okay, on the left-hand side. You click once more, the same arrow will appear on the biological side, okay? You see that, do you see that, you know, that's night co coincidence. But now the change happens. You click once more, on the left-hand side cycle, you will see the malate going to fumarate. But now if you click on the you know, biological side, you see you're turning the other way around. You're not going the oxidative cycle. You're going the, this way around. You're coming to the fumarate. Click once more, the fumarate gives succinate. Click once more in the biology, you have the same one, right? And now the fumarate, the succinate, Fumarate goes to combining with the, you know, going to isocitrate, you'll see that as well. So in our side, we are using the carboxy succinate to do that. And then there is the retroaldol of the isocitrate breaking down to glyoxidate, which is exactly what biology has. So by this juxtaposition, what we have discovered in, by looking at the biological cycle, by comparing it to our simple cycle, is we think we have discovered another cycle that has not been recognized so far, what we call the green arrow on the right-hand side, the green cycle completed by the green arrows on the right-hand side, which we call the reductive glyoxalate pathway. Click, click once more, you will see the term reductive glyoxalate pathway within that green cycle. So it is a third cycle that is hiding in between, which we think might have been much more ancient than the original reductive citric acid cycle itself. So click once more, and we ask the question, tantalizing questions, could there have been a reductive glyoxalate pathway. Can there have been a reductive glyoxalate pathway which gave rise to this reductive citric acid cycle and then disappeared? Just like that crossover that you saw with the alpha hydroxy acids and depsipeptides going to the amino acid, is this the 18th camel that could have given rise to the reductive citric acid cycle? Click once more, you go to that slide 17 where you see that depicted pictorially that now with this component of a reductive citric acid cycle, you ask this question, could that have been the forerunner for this more you know, ancient reductive citric acid cycle? You know, because remember, without the enzymes, you cannot handle oxaloacetate very you know, efficiently. It will decarboxylate to give you pyruvate, okay? Um, I will show you an example where we can break that rule in the next um, part of the topic. So, if you click once more, you will come to this question, you know. So are these proto-metabolic pathways useful for chemical evolution? Yes, you have given us something to think about, but can your cycle that you showed, you know, this reductive glyoxalate pathway, can it move us the same way that the reductive citric acid cycle moves us, say, towards production of amino acids? That is going to be answered in the next part of the talk. I will stop here and let you ask any questions or any logistical issues before I proceed to the last part of the talk. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, does anyone have questions? I know um, there are a few questions in the chat, but I think um, they are more for uh, later on and not, you know, um, to understand like the mechanisms themselves. Okay. Okay, okay, so I'll continue then. So click on the next one and we go to slide number 18. So now we start towards amino acid synthesis. And if you go and search for amino acid synthesis and prebiotic chemistry, 
the only reaction that you will see mostly or 99% is the Strecker reaction. That's a very famous reaction discovered by Strecker way back in the late 1800s. And what it is is a combination of aldehyde in the presence of cyanide and ammonia. If you click, that is the reaction A that will appear and makes an amino nitrile, which then gets hydrolyzed to give you the amino acid. Till today, if you go and look at that condition for hydrolysis, it's like with almost boiling acid, you know, boiling HCL. There are no good ways of, you know, doing this. People have begun to worry about it. And one of my colleagues has shown that you can use sugars to do this, but still it's not very clear, you know, how, how that happens. Um, what, if you click once more, biology, you know, so you compare it to biology at the bottom. Biology uses alpha keto acids and thus what is known as a transamination. It takes an amino acid, transfer that nitrogen group and produces another keto acid and in the process. So it's a, it just transfers one amino group from an amino acid to the keto acid and takes that keto group from that to itself. So it's what is known as a transamination. So you can see the com, com, when you compare reaction A to reaction B, they are completely different, right? So my question was, if biology has to develop this, when did biology develop this transamination? You know, or can we use keto acids itself in, in prebiotic chemistry? You know, is that possible? So you click once more and we propose, this is the proposed reaction that we had using a molecule called diamidophosphate or DAP for short, which is a diamido equivalent of phosphate molecules. That is the molecule which has the two blue ni nitrogens on the left-hand side reaction top. Okay, so what we had proposed was this kind of reaction. I will not go through the details because it did happen this way. We still got amino acids when we mix them, but actually it went through a different pathway. So you click once more, you know, it'll vanish and you will get the new, what we call the observed Bucherer pathway, not the proposed. So what happens here is you add the cyanide, it makes a cyanohydrin, you add the ammonia, you make the amino nitrile of a keto acid, but then it closes under a special condition to give this molecule known as hydantoin, which then hydrolyzes to give you the amino acid. And I will take you through these steps in the next slides as to how this happened. This reaction is very wide with respect to the different um, nitrogen sources. It doesn't have to be ammonia. It can come from various different sources. All it needs is an amine to start off this whole process, which converts itself to ammonia. That's all. So click once more. We'll go to slide number 19 and we'll go through the details of how this reaction happens because it's very important to understand you know, how this differs from the classical Strecker reaction that people have proposed. So what we have is the pyruvate. So the pyruvate, when you throw in this you know, ammonia source and cyanide, gives you a very good amount of the hydantoin of corresponding what we call alanine, which will go to alanine. So if you heat that molecule, that gives you what is known as an N-carbomylated alanine, which loses that group and gives you alanine as the end product. You do this, and this is just the NMR, just to show you that it is real. It's a very clean reaction, not a messy one at all. This is just a proton NMR showing how clean that reaction is. And the way it happens, you click once more on the right-hand side, you will see a sequence of reaction appears. So what it is, is the cyanide adds to that carbonyl group, start from you know pyruvate one and go upwards in the cycle. Cyanide adds, it makes molecule two, then the ammonia reacts with that to make the corresponding amino nitrile four. 
if there is no carbon dioxide in that reaction the reaction just stops there but the moment you put a touch of carbon dioxide either through a carbon dioxide balloon or bicarbonate immediately that molecule number 4 is carboxylated and then it immediately goes undergoes a series of reactions which takes you to the 5 methyl hydantoin number 6 at the bottom of the cycle and that sits there till you hydrolyze it to release alanine so this carbon dioxide is very important for this reaction without the carbon dioxide this reaction does not happen and in, on early earth there was plenty of carbon dioxide so we don't have to worry about the availability of carbon dioxide for this reaction clicking once more uh, you go to slide number 20 and you can do this from glycine this glyoxylate you see glyoxylate going to glycine and there is the nmr proving how clean that reaction is but what you know you you can see that and then what we also saw to our surprise if you click once more is you started seeing a molecule called orotate which is molecule number i think it's 18 i i'm not able to see it very clearly yeah it's molecule number 18 on the right hand side and that molecule is very important because that is the same molecule if you remember is produced by biology which then attaches itself to the ribose and makes uridine and cytidine so we are you know reproducing and this is exactly how the krebs cycle works the krebs cycle produces these you know uh, aspartate and then converts aspartate to orotate and then the orotate goes on so we were really excited to see this naturally appearing in the system this orotic acid so that means we are producing we are reproducing some of the molecules and reactions of biology without even asking for it this seems to be a natural end product of this so um, so sorry uh, going back to that um i i uh okay i'm let's see that let me go back oops let's see i'm have some you know something happened i have to go back to the correct slide number slide uh i do not know whether uh, let me go to slide number 15 uh, no slide number 20 yeah so we were on slide number 20 and so um so if you click once more you will see glycine from glyoxylate but with an added flavor so the, you know it goes through that intermediate that i'm showing there which is number 23 um which rearranges to form the orotate through a completely different mechanism this is not known in biology by the way so we were very excited so we just you know if you click once more it you know the question comes what but what do these protometabolic pathways provide for chemical evolution what it provides for is protometabolic pathways leading naturally via the amino acids to the nucleobases just as you see in biology okay so this is a mere coincidence i am not claiming that this is how exactly it happened and you know i am rediscovering what happened on earlier not at all it is just a mere coincidence and it is very stimulating to see that coincidence with biology that's all so don't try to read too much into it i i i don't clicking once more you go to slide number 21 so where what about oxaloacetate remember how, how i told you oxaloacetate is a problematic molecule what happens if you try this reaction on oxaloacetate many people have tried to do the transamination on oxaloacetate and if they do that if you click once more all they see is alanine and not aspartate because as i told you before the oxaloacetate decarboxylates to give pyruvate and pyruvate will transaminate to give you alanine 
But what about our case? Our case is actually different. If you do the reaction, what happens is because cyanide is a very good nucleophile, it immediately traps that oxaloacetate before it decomposes and makes a stable cyanohydrin adduct. If you click, that will appear. Click once more, that cyanohydrin adduct in the presence of ammonia will make the corresponding amino nitrile adduct without decomposing. Click once more, that makes this important molecule. This is the hydantoin of aspartate. This is an important molecule and I'll tell you why later. And this can open up and dehydrolyze de to give you aspartate. This is the first example known under possible periodic conditions of conversion of oxaloacetate to aspartate. Nobody else has been able to show this in a good manner. The yields are very, very nice. And if you click once more, you will see the crude NMR, the crude of this reaction. And it's a very clean NMR. You know, it's a very high convert, you know, yielding reaction. So the presence of cyanide and ammonia can prevent the oxaloacetate decomposition if ever there was an oxaloacetate. I'm not claiming the oxaloacetate was available because it would be very difficult to preserve it. But if it was available, then this reaction would convert it to this, you know, hydantoin and keep it safe. So um, I will not, um, you know, the, the other NMRs are just to show by proof that we did, you know, make it. You click once more, there is a summary of sentences that appear and you can read through it. But the gist of it is that it is, you know, very, it's a, it's a simple reaction and, you know, it is um, various sources of ammonia. It happens under a, a wide variety of conditions and all of these conditions could, you know, be connected to prebiotic chemistry. But what is more important is that it seems to be coincidental with the type of reactions that happen in biology. Okay, so click once more. Again, the same questions, but what do these proto-metabolic pathways provide for um, chemical evolution? We are in slide number 22. Click once more. There is a summary of the reactions that appear that I've shown you so far. And what becomes very important are these molecules, if you click once more, where they are boxed in, in a blue box. And those molecules are very important because if you look at them very closely, there is only one molecule that can go on to react further to make cyclic structures. Click once more and an arrow will appear telling you which one. And that is important because if you click once more, you will see what happens that that can cyclize to give you a molecule called dihydroorotate. And incidentally, this is exactly what happens in biology. It makes aspartate, gets encarbomylated, makes this encarbomyl aspartate, which is molecule number 15, and then it cyclizes to give you dihydroorotate, which then, if you, you know, this, you know, two hydrogens are removed to make orotate. And there, on, if you click once more, you will get the NMR spectra of this crude reaction, which clearly shows the formation of this molecule. Okay. And click once more you will see that that is what biology does. Biology takes the dihydroorotate and oxidizes to make orotate. That's how biology makes it, okay? We have shown, if you click once more, alternative ways of making the orotate as well, starting from glycine and the simple hydantoin molecule number 28. So there are various ways with which you can begin to see how this matches with what biology is doing. I'm saying that because that is what people are interested in but I'm not making the claim that this is what transitioned to biology, okay? So let us separate that. 
what i'm trying to say is i can discover chemistries naturally emerging without wanting to imitate biology i didn't want to imitate biology i was just exploring reactions and these things happen naturally they pop out naturally which happens to have coincidence with what biology is doing today click once more but this gives you a purely chemical reason why pyrimidines are the only molecules that come out of the reverse citric acid cycle reverse citric acid cycle does not make the purines remember the only nucleobase that is made by biology is this orotate molecule number 18 and you begin to understand why based on a purely chemical reason not necessarily based on a biological reason click once more this provides alternative pathways you know and so now you can start from the keto acids themselves not from aldehydes and you know continue with this click once more you go to slide number 23 and now you say but ram you use oxaloacetate but you told us oxaloacetate was not available well i can come up with a different way not to use oxaloacetate and still make the pyrimidines okay so um because as i said click once more and you see formation of oxaloacetate and its preservation under prebiotic conditions is not yet resolved so remember this you click once more you will see the reductive glyoxylate cycle that happened we use that as the guide now and what we do is we take that glyoxylate and the malonate and we do this reaction so if you click once more you will see appearing on the right hand side the reaction between glyoxylate and malonate in the presence of molecules like urea or other amine sources you know you get this molecule the amine adds the urea adds and then it cyclizes and gives us the same dihydroorotate in good yields so you can make these molecules from a mixture of compounds and you know they are naturally forming i didn't do this with the purpose of making it these are all naturally occurring reactions when you mix them under a given set of conditions okay so there is the nmr you click once more you will see the nmr showing the formation of these molecules in you know and it's a decently clean reaction you know not much side reactions happening click once more so now we are going to go through and try to connect all the things that we have learned so far so can there be natural emergence of interconnected protometabolic pathways in our this type of you know primordial or simple abiotic chemistry click once so that will tell you you know the sentence will tell you the alpha keto acid reactions so you click once more you will see that the reaction of cyanide alone with the keto acids um the reaction of alpha keto i'm surprised why the ah yeah the one you know so this you know i'm sorry the reaction should, you know the color should have matched so you click many times and you will see begin to see the blue cycle of reactions that gives rise to oxaloacetate and then you click once more you will see how the cycle begins to grow click once more you will see you know how this you know as the, and click once more you will see this and you will begin to see that you know you begin you begin to produce you know um these kind of complex reaction cycles that begin to happen and you click once more you will see the connection of how they can feed back with engineer and the nice thing is if you go to the very last part of that it says under similar sets of conditions water or phosphate or carbonate buffer ph 6 through 9 room temperature to 80 degrees you can either do wet dry cycles or you can leave it in solution these kind of reactions work in solution some work better with wet dry but you can also do it under solution it takes a longer time all these things point out to the need of catalysts 
So what we are missing in this whole set of things is catalyst. And the idea is though the amino acids produced in these reactions, can they begin to make peptides and then feed back as catalyst, catalyzing some of these reactions? That's where we are going. You know, can small peptides be coming, coming from the type of amino acids that are produced in this reaction mixture? So click once more, we come to the last slide. And this again goes back in last slide in the sense, you know, there are some philosophical statements there afterwards, but this is the last, you know, slide with respect to the chemistry of it. This is a central problem in origins of life. Click once more, you know, is that what is demonstrated by prebiotic chemistry generally is not what biology is based on. For example, formaldehyde or cyanide, biology does not use that. And, you know, when you look at what biology using is using, you can't try to reproduce that in prebiotic chemistry because they were all done by complex enzymes, all the transformation. So the question then becomes is how to bridge the gap, you know? So you click once more, you get that question. And the answer for me would be that the structures and chemistry used by extant biology must have evolved over time with the changing environment and the changing properties of those molecules. You can't escape that. You know, your molecules in a given environment express a property, and that's the property that you need to work with because that is what will determine what the function is. So click once more, you will see the human evolution picture. And what I'm trying to say is, if this sort of an evolution is possible, you click once more, you will see the colored balls appearing all the way. And what I just say is that you also can, you know, try to do this in a chemical evolution approach, what I call chemical evolution. You click once more, you go to slide number 26, which now asks the question, you know, showing this railway track, a disconnected railway track, saying that how similar should the chemistry of life be to prebiotic chemistry? Should it be the same? Should it be very similar? Or can it be completely different? That's an open question. And now this comes to the point that Frank, you know, was bringing up, you know, in the beginning, you click once more. I showed only one transition there could have been many transitions on the early earth where conditions were changing rapidly. Meteorites hitting, you know, temperatures changing, vastly, you know, catastrophic, you know, events taking place, continent, this, that, those kind of land masses appearing, disappearing, those kind of things. So the question now is, if we run the same chemistry and we catch it in a different time, can we go to something alternative life? Could there have been, you know, if the conditions are not what it is today of water as the solvent, a pH close to neutral with the type of atmospheric gases on with the type of temperatures that we have, if you change any one of those, then the result would be different because we know chemistry and the chemical laws and physical laws are universal, but they very much depend on the conditions under which you apply the to a molecular reaction. So click once more, you will get we can end up with different biological paradigms. You know, we need not have the same type of life based on DNA, RNA, and proteins. It could be different. It could be Depsy peptide-based chemistry for all you know. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm giving that in jest as well. So click once more. And that goes to the central point of this lecture. The molecules that we have in today is a destiny. Uh, sorry, destination, not a destiny. It's a destination. If you change the railway track, your destination will change. You change the molecules, you change the conditions, your destination will change. That means when we are looking for life in an exoplanet, we are biased by the single data point that have, we have in the universe of our own life and looking for only molecules based on our life. 
will be the same mistake that we make of trying to look back into prebiotic chemistry and looking only for molecules that biology uses today. And click once more, you go to the very last slide, which says what and how can we know about the chemical origins of life? And here I wax a little philosophy, click once more. This is from an ancient text, you know, from the East, which says it is known to him, to whom it is unknown. To whom it is known, he knows not. To those who know, it is unknown. To those who do not know, it is known. And I'm sure that you people are saying Ram has lost his marbles. You know, working in this field, he has gone Gugu or Gaga. But I will leave you with another quote from a very you know, famous practitioner in this field who said it in a more scientific way. Anybody who thinks they know the solution to the problems of origins of life is deluded. But anybody who thinks it's an insoluble problem is also deluded. So on that note of delusion, I'll stop my lecture and take questions. Wow, thank you so much for this really wonderful presentation and taking us through all the steps and all the different um, experiments and, and, and reactions you found. Um, this was really such an amazing talk and finishing with that more philosophical um, question is, is really a great uh, discussion start, I think. So thank you. This was wonderful. And everyone, if you have questions, flash your microphone or post them in the chat. Um, let's start with uh, the people that are on stage and then I'll read the questions that are in the chat. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Frank, you had the yeah. question. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I just want to second you that this is, uh, Ram, this is, uh, again, a great intellectual treat. That is uh, kudos. And thank you to your, you know, preparation of this beautiful slides. By the way, I so far, logistically, I, I understand you put the slides uh, in view viewing uh, only mode. Is it the... Maybe I shall like uh, request a, 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 a after this. I mean, uh, it would be great to have a, to be a, have a PDF or some sort of a, uh, alternative version to keep as a record. This is a, a lot of thing to digest, by the way. Yeah, I, I will try to do that. You know, I have to ask my you know scripts people because we are a private research institute. They are sensitive about sharing such information. So, but you know, these are all in the public domain. So it should not be a problem because all of this is published work. I don't see any issues with that, but I will get back to you on that. You know, I generally check because we are we are a private university and not a you know the public type one. But I will check and I will I don't see any problems, but I usually check to ensure that there is no problem with the IT department. You know, the I mean the intellectual transfer property transfer one. That's it. But I will do that definitely. Terrific. Thank you. I'll probably uh, message you uh, later. So, by the way, uh, just uh, uh, so for one question for now, and uh, I'll you know uh, sh share the mics uh, uh, to other audience. The um, without uh, referring specifically to a, a particular slides, just uh, re recall from memory that uh, uh, you showed uh, somewhere that there are alternative. I remember three. Uh, cycles to all leads to the same. Uh, somehow they are also uh, functionally connected to each other, or some somehow like to uh, in the end to produce the 
uh, the the bio, biology like uh, end products, and uh, so I guess you know uh, I guess. Do you want to go to, to that particular slide? If you if you give me the slide number, I can go to that. If that makes the conversation easier for you. Um. Well, okay. Let me uh, do that. Uh, oh, by the way, just is uh, it towards the end? Them, yeah. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, as I'm, I'm backtracking. So uh, another question on the uh, for the uh, slides uh, twenty fifth and twenty five. So yeah. Uh, we your message. One of the message is the chemical uh, evolution. So could you uh, just by uh, these color of dots uh, first? So yeah. It's very atom like, and then they chain up, and then somehow they they form sort of a peptides type of a thing. Then there's a, the the end result purple. Could could yeah. you give names or a specific like a you know, sure, example? Sure. So the, the, a, you know. They, they could be peptides like what I showed you before. You start with a mixture of hydroxy acids and amino acids will be the different colored balls. And they can combine in different ways to make the Depsy peptides of various combinations, which would be the second colored heterogeneous, um, you know. And then as you proceed further, the heterogeneity will slowly decrease and you move to a more homogeneous system. And that is what the all purple color is showing. We have also shown this for nucleotides. For example, I can start with mixtures of RNA and DNA. And we have shown that actually the mixtures help RNA and DNA replicate better than the pure RNA and DNA themselves. If you try to replicate pure RNA and DNA, the problem is the pure RNA binds to itself very strongly or the pure DNA binds to itself very strongly or the pure RNA and pure DNA bind to themselves very strongly that it prevents further replication once it forms the other strand. But if you use these mixtures, what we call chimeras, chimeric strands, they actually help the replication of the pure strands better and they overcome what is known as a template strand inhibition and they produce more of that heterogeneous, homogeneous purple color length oligomer much better than the pure ones themselves. So that's what we are trying to show here. You know, it's like the mixtures provide actually a much better solution of how things can move towards a homogeneity. So what I call this on the left-hand side, I call it as a heterogeneous heterogeneity. On the right-hand side, I call it a heterogeneous homogeneity because if you take RNA, it's homogeneous in its backbone. Peptides, they are homogeneous in their peptide nature. And if you take lipids, they are homogeneous in the terms of making a, having a phospholipid structure, okay, throughout. And these all come together. So you have homogeneous systems that come together and work together in a heterogeneous sense, but they themselves are not that heterogeneous. They are homogeneous. So the question is, how do I go from a heterogeneous heterogeneity to a homogeneous heterogeneity? And you know that is for me the essence of or the philosophical thrust of our research program, which is captured by these colored balls going from a mixture of heterogeneous colors towards um, um, a homogeneous colored oligomer, but it doesn't function alone. It functions only in the presence of others. So environment must be a uh, play a big role in the answer. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And that is why I had that last slide where we were going to if you went go to uh, slide number, um, I think 24, I think, right? Yeah, uh, let's see, is it 24? 
uh, no, sorry, it should be uh, slide number uh, 26, yeah, 26. And if you do the animations there, you will see how you can have, you know, at various stages of change, you know, or switch over, if the conditions changed, then it will change. You know, for example, I'll give you a concrete example. We, we think about RNA and DNA base pairing and we take it for granted, right? But that is only at a pH seven. You change the pH to a four and if the ocean was acidic at always pH four, none of your Watson Crick canonical bases would work because they will not base pair. Or if your C was always alkaline around pH 9.5, your base pairs would not form. But then you may come back with a question, but there are life forms that are living in two acidic conditions or in very you know basic conditions. That is an adaptation that life has come about. If you look at how they do it, they either pump out the protons in an acidic conditions to keep the cytoplasmic pH around seven, or they keep you know the protons inside at a very basic pH so that they don't lose it. And thus they maintain the pH balance somehow for that Watson Crick base pairing to work. If your pH was not 6.5 to 7 physiological pH, your RNA bases will never pair. They will fall apart. And that is the principle behind denaturation of RNA and DNA when you put it in acid or in high basic conditions. So environment is absolutely crucial. That's, a, that's great uh, illustration example. So, so I found the slides uh, that I originally wanted to, it's actually 24. The okay. if you go, uh, yeah. So in the middle, the the color red, like comment, you said the yeah. combination of all three of them, the cyanide, the ammonia, the AKK, uh, keto acids. So produce they all together, right? So that's what you yes, mean. Yes, that's correct. Uh, produce yeah, that is the, a mixture. Yeah, that's right. The yeah. the, you, the you next generation, say, uh, amino acids, and the. Uh, the pyrimidine nucleobase uh, precursor, DHA yeah. And yeah, those two uh, are the DHA or orotate, the dihydroorotic acid and orotic acid themselves. So for for actually uh, listening to this uh, lecture, I got the, uh, the perplexing question that uh, I was thinking something different from this comment, this fact that you found. So, yeah. so for me, uh, there of course, you somehow you uh, I didn't completely understand you, you proved uh, there's only one way to get the pyramid in, uh, but uh, so for me, um, yeah. So could you uh, 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 somehow like uh, uh, in a uh, 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 in a sentence or two, like uh, recapture, restate that uh, your proof why there's only one uh, that you showed? Not 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 only one way. What I just said was that there is a chemical reason why the pyrimidines are the only product coming from the reverse citric acid cycle. So if you go and look in biology at the reverse citric acid cycle or the citric acid cycle, they produce the various amino acids. So they produce aspartate, they produce glycine, and they produce alanine, and they produce the glutamate from you know the four keto acids that are there. And then if you look at the nucleobase that biology produces, it's only the pyrimidine orotate. It does not produce uracil, it does not produce cytidine, it cytosine, it does not produce adenine, nor guanine, or you know, thymidine. You know, those all come later. What I'm trying to say is we found a chemical reason why orotate should be the only one that should be. It's not a biological reason. That's what I was trying to say. 
So I hope that clarifies it for you that what I was trying to say was the fact that we find orotate naturally emerging from these reactions tells us that there is a chemical reason why orotate is the only one and why you cannot produce the other nucleobases from this type of chemistry that I've shown. There might be other type of chemistries, but this type of chemistry naturally produces only the orotate, which seems to be coincidental with what biology is doing today. Uh, gotcha, gotcha. So, so this is actually the the, the uh, intermediate like uh, product of oxidase. Yes. Okay, 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 okay. So, so, so that actually leads to uh, my question that I want to ask. The so, I got the uh, conjecture, or is it there's some something actually uh, a theorem type of uh, already established in in the, this field of uh, chemistry uh, answering the uh, origin of life? The so the. The, the 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 more complex the emergent form could be achieved by multiple ways. So there's some sort of robustness against the uh, changing of the environment or some some sort. For example, your cyanide the pathway or or the the cycle could be you you use the word prebiotic, but if we go back to that age of time, Earth, it could be that was the dominant biology, but somehow due to some sort of change of the environment, it was become pre-biological, right? So uh, what I'm trying to, to, to re uh, allude to is that, uh, could it do, what do, you, what do you think? What was your comment on what, is, so is it provable that it, the, the, the current metastable uh, form of uh, our current biology is actually there's a multiple pathway so that provides that the some sort of robustness against uh, change of yeah. environment. Uh, you know, that's a very difficult question to answer because you are asking me to go to a time and hypothesize where I have no data to hypothesize on. You know, remember, as I told you, go to the black boxes from the very first few slides I showed you. I can demonstrate all these things, but the question will still remain. Did this happen on early Earth? Could this happen on early Earth? For which I have no certain answer. The same would be true for people who would come up and ask, can there be life forms based on the cyanide chemistry that you, you know, showed us? No way of knowing for sure. I can say yes, probably. But, you know, how do you know that's not an um, adaptation of life? If, if you find some life form that is living on cyanide, can I make a claim that, you know, oh, look, I found a life form on cyanide, therefore my chemistry is validated? I do not know. You know, it could be an adaptation, and I don't want to con confuse adaptation with origination. Okay, that is what many people do. That is exactly the problem with the thermal hydrovent people. You know, they are confusing adaptation of life at thermal vents with origination of life at thermal vents. Those two are not the same. They are completely different. You know, so one has to be very, very careful in trying to make two grand eyes of claims. And so that is why I leave that question open all the time. Maybe possible, but we do not know. Uh, that that's fair. I think I get the uh, message. That's uh, yeah. So uh, I'll give the mic back to uh, Katarina. I think I think there's audience that probably you know, if I mean for the audience uh, and also uh, interested in asking question, please do raise your hands so that we can invite you. Uh, 
Katarina. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, you asked a question I wanted to ask too. Um, um, Frank, your last question was, um, you know, the if there were may, probably many um, origins of life on this planet, <clears throat> and then a few maybe one basically and and were stable enough but yeah my question also was if you think that there were many different origins of life on the planet and then we we got you know through adaptation and what survived and was stable enough to the current versions we have yeah that that, that that's entirely possible you know you know we need not even go that far above prebiotic chemistry even the Luca, the last universal common ancestor, there are arguments about whether they are as a Luca or Lucas, you know, um, you know, not the George George Lucas, but you know, L-U-C-A-S. The, you know, are there more than one common, you know, universal ancestor? And there are people who argue for that. And you know, the the myth of a single common, you know, Luca has been shaken quite a lot by you know the recent. So. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I always think it would be so fragile to just rely on one thing, single occurrence. Most Correct. of things that yeah. occur one time don't make it <laughs> for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we had a few questions in the um, in the chat. So Jake asked if there is some in so or like a place where the these cycles are described where people can look it up and <sighs> yeah the cyanide you know the cyanide interaction in biology is known from uh, more of a you know uh, a fatal viewpoint you know where you know what the toxicity of cyanide is so if you google you will get a lot of reactions and interestingly you will find that cyanide interferes with the metabolism cycles that I just showed you, for the same reason, it forms cyanohydrin adduct and interferes. So there are many people who have tried to even treat cyanide toxicity using glyoxalate that I showed you because it can make us a glyoxalate adduct and you can pull it out. So uh, from a biological viewpoint, the only thing that I know is cyanide toxicity that has been studied. From a chemical viewpoint, we are the first ones to look into the cyanide chemistry, this kind of a systematic manner but if you want to look at cyanide chemistry per se in prebiotic chemistry it's a huge there is a there is a there are plenty of papers by one of the pioneer in this field is clifford matthews he published a science paper talking about cyanide and hydrogen cyanide polymers are the origins of life so there's you know um we have written an accounts of chemical review where we have talked about the cyanide chemistry where we have tried to kind of collate all the cyanide chemistry. So uh, I can send Katrina the relevant uh, literature and she can distribute it to people who are interested in looking at the cyanide chemistries that are available. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's wonderful. And um, the, the other question Jake had, which you kind of, I think, already answered throughout the talk, if, if uh, people are uh, in the lab trying to mimic different um, environmental properties yeah. um, to replicate what happened during that time on earth 
You know, that's a very valid question. And many people ask me, you know, you have not used any metals, you have not used any clays. Who were your reactors? You know, and I, I always tell my, you know, students, there were no sigma, you know, companies selling you reaction vessels like round bottom flasks or chemicals, which we do, you know, as a matter of fact, to demonstrate this chemistry. So we have to rely on the minerals. We have to rely on prebiotic reactors, right, if you will. But the problem is if we go that route immediately, you get a lot of mess because these are things that, you know, go run in different directions based on what the compositions of the minerals are. And many of the analysis become intractable. And one of the important things that, you know, my professor taught me was that if you do this research, do the research in such a way that even if you remove the prebiotic relevance, your science stands on its own as a contribution to chemistry or biochemistry. Because that's the only way the poor graduate students and postdocs who work on this project will get jobs, right? Otherwise, they will, you know, you always make a mess and then you publish, oh, I made a mess. Nobody's going to hire that postdoc or student. So I need to be very, very careful. And that is why we select projects this way to show the proof of principle. And then there are many other colleagues of mine or collaborators of mine who are willing to do this because they are well established and they use their, you know, fancy analytical tools and technology to see you know what happens if you add minerals to this if you what happens if you add divalent metals that were you know plenty present in the ancient ocean or things like that so yes i'm all for it but at this moment right now we are not willing to step into that because of the complexity and i'll give you one concrete example really concrete example to drive home the point you know, in 1953, two major papers appeared in, you know, and changed the facet of science for the whole world. One was the very famous Stanley Miller paper, the Uri Miller, you know, gas spark discharge experiment, which showed you can make amino acids from gases. The second was the Watson Crick paper, which showed the DNA structure. Okay. Now ask yourself, which paper has really stuck in your mind? when you think of a game-changing, paradigm-changing chemistry. It's the Watson Crick that stands out. You know, people talk about it all the time. Stanley Miller paper is only talked about in the context of origins of life as a very pioneering experiment. But even that is being questioned because the reducing conditions are being challenged, right? So what that is always on the back of our minds when we ever fashion projects inspired by the questions of origins of life what sort of chemistry projects we can fashion that can stand out on its own. In our case here that I showed you with the metabolism, the use of cyanide as a reductant, it can reduce carbon oxygen double bonds, carbon double bond has never been shown before. So for me, if even if you take the prebiotic relevance, it's a paper that stands on its own by chemistry. And those are the type of projects that we try to do. So Jake's question is completely valid. I have no arguments against it. It's just that for practical purposes and for people's lives who hang on it to get a job, I have to be careful as to how far I can push this. Interesting. Um, it's so interesting to learn the thought process, how to approach these in different fields. I find it fascinating. So thank you for sharing that because, you know, we have very different ways of approaching problems and it's always yeah, it's always so much valuable to learn from that. Um, yeah. Um, and Ethan, he's asking, 
if you could comment on Nick Lane, Nick Lane's ideas, uh, I don't know. Probably. Oh yeah, yeah, Nick Lane, that's correct. You know, yeah. he's a, he's a, he's a, you know, he's a fantastic scientist. I have great admiration for him. He comes from a very different angle. I, I have taken issues with, you know, the conclusions he comes with because he is trying to, as I told you, try to reconstruct biology based on what metabolism is doing today. So, for example, he will take carbon dioxide and do a reduction, you know, with metals and he will produce formate or he'll produce acetate, traces of pyruvate, and then make claims that he has solved the problem. But that's not, for me, that's not that. You, you What you've done is produce the same type of chemistry that you find on a meteorite, right? But if you take a meteorite and put it in a pond, you're not going to get life crawling out of it immediately, at least. Nobody has done it or, you know, have done it and failed. So just by production of these, you know, building blocks, you can't claim you have made life. You know, for example, you can make pyruvate, but what good is that pyruvate if it does not do anything further under the conditions you have produced? If there is more decomposition than accumulation, you are actually defeating it in a way that, you know, you, you are not a, in a self-sustainable mode. You're not in a, leave alone self-sustaining, not in a sustainable mode. But I have enormous respect for the chemistry that he demonstrate and, you know, the gust, you know, the conviction with which he does, you know, all more, you know, more power to him because we need people coming from different directions to convince each other through actual experimental results rather than just claims. Yeah, thank you so much for your answers. And uh, Denise and Kirko, did you have um, some more questions? No, I know we've been going on for almost two hours. So it's uh, the last few minutes and then I would like to give Dr. Ram a break. Thank you. <laughs> no, but you know, there are plenty of good questions. You know, there are, you know, focus on cyanide pathways that explore formaldehyde and chemical agents. Yes, formaldehyde has been, you know, the very famous foremost reaction I showed in the very beginning of my slide. That foremost reaction is uses formaldehyde as the source molecule to make sugars. People have been using it. And so there are, you know, a lot of chemistries here. As I said, I've only shown you a facet of chemistry based on my philosophical approach. Doesn't mean that's the only one or the right way to think about it. Different ways to think about it. And, you know, people have come up with great discoveries because of that. And so we all need to kind of, you know, look at the different approaches and see what sort of, you know, ideas emerge that become naturally, you know, a front runner for people to take on, like, you know, the RNA world theory. Many people still hang their hats on an RNA world theory. I don't belong to any world theory. I just belong to, you know, I want to do these reactions and let the system teach me how it moves rather than me teaching the system how it moves. I did not have any questions because you uh, everybody had asked them. I just wanted to say that the slides were were exceedingly excellent and uh, appreciate you for that and taking us through the entire process. This was uh, an amazing way to spend this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I will try to get the PowerPoint slides in the animation so that you, you know, you can follow that and I will talk to my, you know, with people and find out if there is any problem sharing it. That's all. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. And thank you, especially also for the answers you gave us. Uh, Frank, you wanted to 
Yeah, if, if I may, I just want to add uh, 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 one more question. I mean. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the uh, so for the uh, in your um, I would say a alternative route uh, uh, achieving the biology. The, uh, where I do see in the uh, slide somewhere the the uh, the role that the clay uh, is 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 it in the hydration the uh, uh, part of it or so in in your uh, setup. Uh, or model that has been realized, how, how important the uh, wet and dry cycle, how many roles, uh, critical functions that in, that in particular environment provides versus other? You mean the cycling, uh, wet dry cycling, you know, how many cycles? Was that the question? I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. Right. So, uh, so in, in, yeah, so, so the question, if <laughs> I don't think I have very, it's myself very clear, but uh, the, so what in your uh, demonstration, uh, which is different from the hypothetically the, the real, uh, you know, uh, what might have been going on in real biology that, uh, uh, so let's just give, give, give it as may be. So, so let's say uh, I'm believer of when dry cycle, you know, uh, assumptions. Yeah. But then, what your model? Uh, uh, if I'm looking for su supporting, or um, pro and con, I mean, uh, uh, or uh, unfavorite uh, 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 facts from your model, what is what is uh, what what's your uh, model can uh, uh, have to say about the uh, wet dry cycle? So wet and dry cycles do have a role to play. You know, they certainly do. But what I'm trying to move is towards chemistries that can happen in solution so that I can do it without within an enclosure like a protocell. Okay, so, so once you go into the protocell, the need for wet and dry chemistry goes down. So um, the idea for me is the wet and dry cycle will give you certain molecules to start off with, but then if those molecules can become independent of that wet dry cycle, those are the molecules that could go further. If you are going to be always dependent on wet dry cycle for your survival, formation and survival and existence, then you will be very limited. You see that? So what I'm trying to find out, I'll give you a concrete example. For example, you know, going back to that dipsy peptide to peptide, which is only possible via the peptide, you know, dry wet dry cycle. Let us suppose this is a Gedanken experiment, a completely thought experiment. Let us suppose you come up across, you come up with a Depsy peptide or a long peptide or a Depsy peptide, which is able to make peptide bonds. That's not unheard of. Biology uses peptides to catalyze peptide bonds. There is a non-ribosomal peptide synthesis. So if there is a peptide that could begin to make peptide bonds. Wouldn't that peptide start making peptide bonds without the need for wet dry cycle? That is what I'm thinking. That's the way I want to move. I'm not against wet dry cycle, but it's not the wet dry cycle is not the solution from start to finish. It plays a role. It has its part, but it will be the 18th camel which goes away after playing its part. Something else will take its place. And that's the nature of evolution. Something always better always takes the place of the older one, right? 
and so wet dry cycle has an evolutionary part and role to play but it might go away when something else comes along which is much better than that ah i see so that's uh, uh again thank you you know that's uh, probably a quite crucial message uh from your uh sharing that's interesting yeah, yeah. Um, I think if you still have time for one more question, John. Please, yes. Yeah. John. Yeah, thank you. Hey, John, go ahead. Yeah, hi, Katarina. Uh, uh, thank you for giving me the chance to la ask the uh, last question. Uh, my question is, uh, see, as we know that uh, in CR protein, uh, see, uh, the, all the amino acids are L-type and uh, our glucose uh, pretty much all uh, air type. So does that mean anything uh, about the sea, like uh, uh, the origin of this, uh, uh, our life? See, I'm thinking about the sea, if, if we have a mixture of all those uh, non-organic uh, uh, molecules, and then they make organic uh, molecule, uh, most of the time they probably will make a uh, sea different types, D, L, D, and D type, L type. But uh, see, in nature, actually, see, what will happen is uh, all the amino acid are L type and uh, glucose uh, uh, L type. So would this be, see, against the multi-origin uh, theory or just some sort? Great, great question, great question. I didn't touch upon chirality at all for a simple reason there has been no good explanation as to why it is l amino acids and d you know sugars that biology has chosen to work with now the problem is this even if you do find a way of making pure amino acids l amino acids and pure d sugars you will not be able to keep that chirality for long because they will get destroyed and you might say how wrong you know don't know you know but think about it. Look in biology, what biology does for the transamination. If you go back to the slide of transamination, you will see in the transamination that chirality is destroyed because that amino acid becomes a keto acid, right? So, but biology solves it beautifully by using enzymes which impose that chirality. So if you do that transamination without enzymes, your amino acids would racemize completely. And the same is true for sugars because the sugars have an aldehyde and, you know, you, you, and many heating processes or, you know, heating with metals and things like that, they can scramble the stereochemistry. In fact, we have submitted a, a paper where we show that the carbonyl group can actually walk itself across the backbone of the sugar and scramble the stereochemistry. Okay. So my question, my problem is not, you know, trying to understand why it is L and D that is, you know, that is mind-blowing and beyond my ability to comprehend or explain but my problem is more tractable why a homo chiral oligomer why is it completely of l and why it is completely d in the rna yeah. and that is simply because it's only the homo chiral polymer that can function so for example if you take replication it's only the homo chiral polymer that replicates better than the heterochiral polymer. The same way, if you take a homo L um, amino acid peptide, 
that resist hydrolysis much better than the chiral mixed ones. So I can tell you whether it can be completely homo L or homo D, but I can't tell you why it is D or L. That choice comes at the level of a polymer, not at the level of a monomer. And that is my submission for people who worry about chirality is that the chirality at the small molecule level is very difficult to control. But the chirality at the level of an oligomer is much more easier to control because it's selected based on a function. So if I have a mixture of D and L mixed oligomer versus a pure D oligomer or a pure L oligomer, it's the pure D and L oligomer which will move forward based on their function. The mixed one will suffer quite a lot of problems. And I can begin to see why you can have this, what I call this homogeneity in the biological molecules because they function better. And biology relies on function for survival and therefore it chooses a homo L or a homo D. But why it is D or L, that is not known. And I do not know whether we can find it to any satisfaction unless a great discovery is made. Yeah, I'm just wondering, see, if in another world, see, another Earth, maybe it's the other amino acid. Yeah. Actually, you should read Alice in Wonderland. You know, there she wonders about the mirror images of the milk molecule. You know, so, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting idea. And actually, there are some people who have, you know, in, you know, scientists who have synthesized the completely D version of an amino protein and show that it works exactly the opposite way of the complete L version of the protein. So it works on the opposite chirality of the substrate. So they have shown mm -hmm. it. So it is possible. It is possible that you have a life that is completely based on D amino acids and L sugars. Thank you. Actually, my colleague Donna Blackman is at the Scripps Research Institute is one of the foremost in trying to tackle this chirality question in terms of origins of life. Yeah, so that's a quite interesting discussion that I just, just heard over there. Thank you. The uh, I have a, a more uh, basic question uh, on the slides uh, six, number six. You showed a, oh, by the way, on the slides, there's an interesting quote that you shared. Uh, earlier, I, I took it wrong. I thought you said evolution is a thinker, not an engineer. But I, now it's the tinkerer, 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 tinkerer. Yeah, yeah. Tinker, tinker. <laughs> I got it. Oh, exactly no. opposite. Anyway, slide number uh, six. Slide, yeah. Yeah, slide number six. So at the lower, um, uh, on the right lower bottom, there yeah. you, you see the uh, ammonium uh, cyanide. The correct. The, yeah. So so. Um, they go up like uh, in there are three candidates that they can you know form uh, be in they do so form. it's not what? can form they do form they do form that you know so that means the ammonium cyanide makes a polymer and the dark polymer when you hydrolyze these molecules come out right 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 so uh, yeah. what is the background uh, uh, knowledge of this uh, for for the only the metal ones goes up so no. uh, goes into the, so the, the real the idea is no, no, the idea there was that, you know, that people are looking at RNA, which is at the very top, and they are looking at the molecules, uridine and cytidine, and they are looking at the nucleobases, uracil and cytosine, 
and they see the same molecules forming in the ammonium cyanide reaction and they make an immediate connection saying that look these molecules are made therefore life should make rna but my question is if you look how biology makes that rna molecule it does not make it from uracil and cytosine it makes it from orotidine which is right below and that orotidine comes from orotic acid and the thing is this orotic acid is also found in that mixture coming from ammonium cyanide but because people are biased by rna and what they see in rna they don't pay any attention to the orotic acid that is in this mixture and my point is that if you want to you know look into biology and how biology makes it why don't you study orotic acid why are you only looking at uracil and cytosine that is the point that i was trying to make ah okay no no got it okay well thank you so much uh thank you john for coming up and asking that question that was a very interesting uh, discussion also and thank you um everyone for asking great questions and of course a special thank you to you uh ram this was such a treat to get to learn um so much from your field and uh dive into biochemistry again which i haven't been doing for a while and i learned so much and i think uh, everyone here you can see in the chat um um and people reaching out saying thank you so much for this room that this was an amazing talk so yeah thank you and we really appreciate it and feel free to come back anytime again when you yeah. uh, maybe want to share some research updates um that uh, yeah we are always very happy to welcome you back so thank you so much uh, this was amazing yeah okay okay thank you so much for this opportunity and thank you all for your kind attention and questions yeah thank you bye yeah thank you and um yeah and yeah. And if you like discussions like this, just follow the club, then you get updates and you see the calendar. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, tomorrow we have two rooms because we had to reschedule previous room. Uh, so it kind of ended up having two rooms tomorrow. Uh, so Dr. Fratkin from Israel will join us to talk about methods, how to control unwanted thoughts. And Dr. Lana will talk about um, intracellular transfer of telomeres and T cells. He's a, um, a aging a scientist for rejuvenation. He also has a company uh, that he formed recently with a really interesting approach um, on aging uh, and how to treat aging. So um, yeah, involving T cells. Uh, so yeah come back uh, i hope i hear you all back soon and uh, have a great rest of the evening day or frank um, rest of your day i think it's morning where you are so thank you everyone and uh, again thank you so much dr krishnamurti yeah, um, thanks again yeah thanks again. very grateful for this opportunity yeah yeah thank you okay yeah. Close the room and three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Katerina.